All right, CNFers, uh, let's do my requisite shout-out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite N.A. beer out there. And from someone who has been drinking a little too much A beer, if you visit athleticbrewing.com and use the promo code BRENDAN020 at checkout, you get a little discount. I don't get any money. It's not a, not a, not a paid advertisement. Certainly not. I'm merely celebrating a great product as a brand ambassador. Skip the hangover, man. For someone who's been living with hangovers in a fog since 2024 started, skip it, man. Skip it. Also, part of what keeps the lights on at CNF Pod HQ is taking on editing clients and or writing coaches, maybe coaching, and maybe even a little uh, book marketing advice. I'm not perfect, but I have some experience. I talk to a lot of writers on this show. I do a lot of writing and editing. been doing this mess in one way or another for 20 years. If you're looking to level up, you can email me at the podcast email, creativenonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll start a dialogue, okay? And I must say, you got a great voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you're in the right business there. <laughs> ACN Efforts is the creative nonfiction podcast show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan Ryan O'Mara. B. Ryan O'Mara. Your buddy B.O. Isn't that cool? Richard I got a good voice for this. At last, publishing the 400th new episode of this podcast. The Double Zero Pods are a special occasion to bring in a ringer. And who better than someone who read a poem at President Barack Obama's second inauguration? No big deal. It's Richard Blanco, the Cuban-American poet who looks alarmingly like the actor Lee Pace. Go look it up. His latest collection is Homeland of My Body and is published by Beacon Press. In 2023, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Biden. Yeah. I'll fill you in a bit more on Richard in a moment, but uh, be sure you're heading over to brendanamara.com for show notes and to sign up for my monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, book recommendations, a unique short essay, links to cool shit, and I'm going to flirt with bringing back the CNF and Happy Hour and get the band back together. Looking at you, Lori, Suzanne, and Betsy. You can also follow along on Instagram and threads at Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Hey, and there's also Patreon.com slash CNFPod in case you're willing or able to throw a few bucks into the CNFPod coffers. I understand if you're unable. Things are tight. Uh, I think I'll try to figure out a way to do something like office hours also for the Patreon crew. I do these video threads, but I was maybe something more like a live, uh, live kind of thing. Whatever's on your mind do my best to try to answer. I might not have all the answers, but I might have a couple, and that's kind of cool. Free ways to support the show, of course. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, and I'll read that sucker right here, like this one from Curious Chimp, Sublime Sustenance. I've just recently followed this podcast, and what a joy. Brendan does an exceptional job keeping the conversations real. It's clear his subjects trust and respect Brendan's intentions and curiosities about writing in general and their writing life specifically. 
listening to this podcast often feels like listening in on two writing friends, connecting after a while apart, excited to share their discoveries and passions with each other, honest and generous insights into the wide variety of creative lives. Good stuff. Truly, that review was good stuff. Thank you very much, Mr. or Mrs. Chimp. Richard Blanco, people. He's the author of For All of Us, One Today, An Inaugural, Poet's Journey, and The Prince of Los Cucuyos, A Miami Childhood. His list of prizes and honors are too long to name, so visit richard-blanco.com and you can read his impressive curriculum vitae. He's a civil engineer and also an associate professor at Florida International University. In this episode, he talks about fever writing, showing his rough drafts to his students. Uh, that can be awfully illuminating. We uh, Don't we always, we're like, how is this thing so good? And then if you have the courage to show your uh, bloodstained draft to people, they're like, oh, okay, I get it. It wasn't always so brilliant, and it's a grind. The grind, man. He also reads two poems at the end of this conversation, which really brings it all to life, if you ask me. There'll be a parting shot at the end of this podcast. Wow, you haven't had one of those in a while. Now that I'm under two months to go on the book. Uh, shit getting real over here. My over-caffeinated, over-boozed mind will fill you in on some stuff. But for now, here's Richard Blanco. The Milestone, episode 400. Richard. It's something I noticed in, in you know reading um, in in reading your last uh, well your your latest book too. There's a there are a lot of uh, grace notes of various various things, and one uh, one I picked up on was uh, was uh, was coffee, and I, I feel like there was a lot of mention of coffee, and and I, I want to get a sense of just uh, your 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 love of it or your memory of it, maybe how you enjoy it. Well, um, you know, as a as a Cuban. Cuban American. I mean, you're drinking coffee at like six months old. So um, <laughs> Cuban coffee, which is which is uh, you know super hyper speed uh, espresso, and um, it's very much a cultural thing too. I mean, like like most cultures, but it, yeah, I grew up drinking coffee. I love coffee. Uh, I'm also a night owl, so like so I need coffee in the morning. <laughs> but espresso, I can't I can't deal with like regular old american coffee it just does nothing for me i travel with uh instant cuban coffee so <laughs> to spike up <laughs> spike up that hotel coffee which is just there's never any good hotel no. coffee unless they have an espresso machine <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah um yeah it's it's very ritualistic you know the morning and and of course cigarettes go with coffee but i don't write too much about cigarettes because it's frowned upon, <laughs> but it might be the last living poet smoker in the, in the United States, maybe. <laughs> uh, that's great. So when when, uh, when do words and writing become important to you as, as you're as you're coming up as a, 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 a young man? Well, um, as I like to say, kind of 
uh, got into poetry through the back, back door. Um, mm. So I've, I'm a civil engineer. That was my first degree. And I've been a practicing civil engineer for most of my life. Um, and it was actually when I first started working in uh, my consulting firm that uh, I started writing. <laughs> yeah, uh, not poetry, but I realized my job uh, involved, half of my job was writing, writing reports and studies and letters and understanding tone and understanding word choice and all these kinds of things that that I needed uh, to be effective at my job. Oh, and of course, proposals, which are, uh, you know, nothing but a primarily a narrative of your vision for your project and with a lot of hyperbole in there. And so I just got sort of geeked out with language. And uh, <laughs> I started, I, well, I should say, let me backtrack. I was always a left brain, right brain person, mm -hmm. kid. Um, I love everything. I still love everything, and every every kind of subject matter. And um, I always knew I wanted to do something creative, but I didn't know what that would be. And so when this happened in the office, I said, hmm, I wonder what I know nothing about poetry. Let's study that. <laughs> so I started writing poetry, uh, very bad poems at first, as usual, as is typical. Um, my sense of poetry was really archaic, obviously, and I uh, was writing about daffodils and stuff in Miami as if I'd ever seen a daffodil uh, but I thought I had to write like one of those uh, dead British white guys so um, so I just took a class at a Miami Dade uh, college back then and just started exploring it really just following my creative and intellectual curiosities and eventually apply eventually applied to a master's program at my alma mater um, for my engineering degree where I teach now actually and um, I got in and the rest, as they say, is history. But <laughs> but more recently, I realized uh, I, I was still thinking, like, why poetry? Like, why not painting or, I don't know, acting or so? I yeah. don't know. And I realized that I think it was because I never remember not knowing two languages. I got in, uh, I arrived at the United States when I was 45 days old, and I was the first one in the family to really learn English. <laughs> so um, I was translating for my parents like at four years old, um, you know, not whole conversations, but, you know, words. And so I think that imprinted in me um, several things when I not taking language for granted and understanding that language was not just a form of communication, but a way of thinking, a way of being uh, in the world. And also that language is power. Um, you know, here I am, you know, as I, as I grew older, my parents were at my linguistic mercy whenever we left Miami, <laughs> you know? So so I think that, that made an imprint. And so when that happened in the engineering office, I think it just sort of clicked. And uh, a lot of times when you, you speak with, uh, with with poets who have, who have gotten to a certain level of... Uh, uh, of publication, you find this with uh, you know novelists too, even nonfiction writers. Uh, you know they always talk about the, the you know the early stuff as as uh, you know bad short stories, bad novels, bad essays, bad poems. And you know for you, what how would you define what a a bad poem was for you back back then, and how that evolved? I think what what defines a bad poem is also in a way the opposite. Of what defines a good poem? Um, I think at the heart of what makes a good poem is I think a certain honesty, um, a certain also discovery that the poem isn't about presenting an idea or you know the poem, 
poetry is so much like music right like it, it has to stir the emotions mm. but it and it also has to just like there's a discovery if i i feel like if i don't discover something in a poem it's not a poem yet and and there's no bad poems there's just poems we don't publish <laughs> or it's like i mean not that there are there are better poems of course and but um but i always i i always know uh, at least i don't know if it's a good poem but i know when it's a poem uh, because it doesn't, it ends somewhere else than it began. And I tell this to my students all the time, just enter the poem and let the idea emerge organically from the poem. Don't put the poem, the idea before the poem, don't put the uh, cart before the ox. So I feel like when that happens, I feel like I have a decently successful poem. Um, and then of course, all sorts of matters of craft, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not treating the subject matter in a cliche way. Again, that's connected to a discovery. And there's also something else that I can't really put into words, even as a poet, but there, I know it's a poem because my artistic persona takes over and uh, in a way that I'm not writing that poem anymore. And it becomes, it becomes like this other, you know, it's, it's not the person, it's not the Richard that's changing the cat litter and 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 flicking off people on i-95 <laughs> this is richard the poet and when and that magic happens i know there's something almost divine going on and so um i would say that uh, i still read uh my very first poem from my very first creative writing class it, it was so well for reasons it's so important to me but um it's still you know it's still you know, I feel it still. Like I feel it's important, and and it, and people still connect with it. So, um, I would say like that doesn't happen. I think so much with poets. I think we polish so much of our poetry as much as it might happen with, with novelists or short story writers because we're so obsessive about, <laughs> you know, about about the word that um, I would say there's lesser poems, but uh, we probably wouldn't publish anything that we didn't consider at least at least a decent decent poem and is that first poem is that the um, america poem for that you wrote uh for yeah. uh, campbell mcgrath is that right yes yes it is <laughs> and uh and i gotta say that that poem you know speaking of what makes a good poem like you know what i was writing before was not honest right it was it was also not discovery it was like my sense of you know, I was these and thous and like really highfalutin <laughs> and like, you know, majestic poetry, right? And um, that poem, the assignment was write a poem about America. And that assignment, like, just opened the floodgates of all these questions that I didn't even know I had about home, place, belonging, identity. Uh, that has been my life's work to this day, as I like to say. You know, a poet's writing. A poet is writing one poem all their life. It's. It's. I'm. I'm I feel blessed that I discovered that question um, really early on, and um, and it, and I think you know from then on my poems really changed into what I would consider better poems because it was writing from a, from a really authentic space and from a real uh, some a real sort of. Um, um, question, yeah, you know, or a dilemma, or a real searching, right? And each poem becomes becomes a little bit of a discovery, and and in the aggregate, the book is a journey through the poems of where, you know, so yeah, a book also has sort of an arc and a discovery as a whole, 
And um, yeah, and I, I, it, it's funny because when uh, when I served as uh, presidential inaugural poet, I told the president, yeah, it's the same assignment I got from Campbell McGrath. <laughs> like write a poem about America or for America. <laughs> so, so talk about serendipity. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that yeah, that, that that's amazing. You're like I've I've heard this uh, I've heard this assignment before, so this will be no different than what it was back. <laughs> back in the day <laughs> well, it's, kind of, it's kind of what i've been writing about all my life right like you know part of it was not just cuban identity but it was also what does it mean to be an american right like it's they're both the same the same side of of the coin i mean opposite sides of the coin but still the same same connected question yeah yeah and i it's uh I, what i loved hearing you say earlier about uh, kind of like sir essentially surrendering to the writing of a of a poem or you know it'll just kind of almost dictate its terms to you in a sense that's just my my phrasing of it and i think maybe a lot of people who are be it writing a poem or an essay or uh, or or something they um they feel like they might have something to say but they don't know how quite to say it or they are afraid of the bad writing that is going to take to get to where they want to go and Right. Yeah. And how have you navigated that, uh, you know, that feeling of, OK, I got to get through this bad stuff to get to anything that's competent or in and, and ideally very good. Sure. I don't know about every other part, but I, I think it's always starts with really bad stuff. Oh, yeah. um, so um, what I do, I, pra- I practice something called uh, and this is another myth that I also have to dispel all the time to my students. I show them my draft so they can see what a mess how messy the process is at the beginning so i do something called fever writing sometimes i do it by hand or on the computer or both and print out and keep on sketching and i think what that does it exercises x from you all the crap language you have right the stuff we're hearing every day the good mornings how are you the blah 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 the blah 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 you know all this stupid language that we use all day <laughs> um and it gets you it starts uh you know sort of yeah exercising that like getting it out of you so that you can get to a language that's the, the language of poetry what it's also doing is when we when we enter a poem like maya angela said um, every time I write a poem, it's the first time I write a poem. Mm. <laughs> uh, when we enter a poem, if you're if, like I said, if you're not going in with an idea, uh, which is I think not the right way to begin, usually it's something that's that's uh, tickled our subconscious. There's something that's moved us. There's there's something that that we feel we need to write about, and we don't know what that is exactly or what it's what nerve in the subconscious it has struck. And I think what we're trying to do is find language that then has that can can pull i always say like we're using words like bait to fish in, into the subconscious to understand what that emotion is about where it comes from what it is how is it part of you now what does it mean in the world what does it mean to me and so and so you can see it i keep all the I keep uh, all the drafts in one file, so you can see it just begins with just splattering, you know, throwing jello on the mm-hmm. wall, see what sticks. And at some point, I almost compare it like also to like you're using, you're trying to tune like a guitar or a piano, and you're just, you know, it sounds like garbage, garbage, garbage. And then you hit the, that right note. And something about it says, "Ah, this is Richard the poet, mm. not Richard. It's it's I've I've arrived. Doesn't mean the poem is done, but at that point I can trust. It might be an image or a phrase or 
or sometimes a form that you discover, oh my God, this is, this is going to be a, you know, a, a, a villanelle or something like that. And then you're able to trust moving forward the poem and, and, and you already have a basis of, of the kind of language you want to stay in and not revert, revert back to playing crappy language. And, and it's, but it's also messy because then you, you'll get stuck in the middle of that. You have to go to sort of back to the fever writing process and then come back into the poem. And then sometimes the poem is good, but there's something that's not, it's craft worthy, but there's something that's not jiving. I haven't gotten to that. Ah, this is what the poem is. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so, uh, but yeah, messy, messy at first. And then, and then it becomes more, you know, speaking of left and right brain, people often uh, think, you know, oh, how could you be an engineer or poet? I'm like, well, my math class has taught me as much about writing as English class, like, because they're, they're left, you know, at some point you, you migrate from right brain to left brain when you start looking at the structure and you start looking at, and you start looking at, 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 at sound which is like music right it's very mathematical and it's a and it's kind of a, but something you said earlier too was interesting to me is that the idea of the problem right so and in, in some ways finding the poem is also finding what the parameters are mm. and free verse especially because you could write as long as you could write anything right so um so sometimes it's that's also part of what lets you trust a poem okay I'm feeling, you know, what are the parameters? What am I going to hold to? Is this going to be a two-page poem? I, I start feeling what, what are the things that I'm not going to do in this poetry? What are the things that I'm not going to include in this poem from all those, from all those beginning notes, right? So it's process of paring down um, things to their essence, distilling to the most important essence of the, of the poem. When you decided to show early drafts to your students, uh, what effect did that have on them? They get a little freaked out <laughs> because they have to write a poem a week. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I do tell them, I, I use an extreme example. It's like, it's 40 pages of notes for like um, a one and a half page poem. So, <laughs> um, they, so they either, but I tell them, this is an extreme example. Not every poem has been, is this difficult? They freak out, but I think in a good way, and I think it's eye-opening for them because it, they, you know, here's your professor showing you, you know, this is a process, right? And um, I think that I, I would hope it puts them at ease. Now, another opposite reaction is like there's still the ones that the non-believers are like, nah, you don't revise that much. You're just copying and pasting a lot, like. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, no, like, that's not, this is every single thing in there is part of the process. So, mm -hmm. um, that some still want to cling on to this idea that, you know, poems just are pure inspiration and fall out of the sky. And when, uh, lately I've seen, and maybe it's cause, uh, you know, some people are taking part in a, uh, NaNoWriMo and I've seen online that, you know, people are trying to like post, uh, I don't know, a page of their work in progress and you know part of me is thinking it's a it's a it's a sign of maybe trying to find reassurance or validation and and the, and maybe you know you should just kind of like uh i don't know just hold hold that up and you know you keep keep working but like a lot of people the insecurities bubble up and i i notice that because you know i feel those same pulses in me though and um you know for 
for work in progress or something, uh, you know, if you're not posting it online, which I probably wouldn't advise people to do, but that's uh, that's their their cup of tea. Uh, <laughs> who do you, who do you trust a work in progress with as you're looking to just you know really hone and hone and hone? Speaking about when a poem is sort of done, I I don't know that it's done, but I and there's a stage in a poem where I feel I I can show it. Um, in other words, the the big the big blocks are in place, I think, to varying degrees, but something I, at least it's not a bunch of gibberish, you know, floating around on the page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my first reader is always uh, my husband. Um, mm-hmm. He is, uh, I mean, out of out of uh, practicality, <laughs> um, uh, I, I have my friends, but I, uh, uh, poet friends uh, all the way back from graduate school. Um, but we don't exchange poems on that level. Um, I usually give them work once it's in a book form and then they review my book and then and then we go back into the poems mm. and think about revision of each poem but but my husband um he's gotten pretty good over the years he's not a writer um and he's gotten really good over the years of, with practicing with me um and i like him as a reader because i also he's not See, I think sometimes giving it to a poet sometimes is good. Sometimes, like, I don't want to debate line breaks right now. You know, yeah. like, I just want to know is this poem doing something or not? And so, as a reasonably intelligent person who's now quite familiar with poetry and especially my poetry, he can tell right away if this is like, eh, you know, there's something missing here. And he, and he knows my life well enough that he can comment on what he thinks is the poem is trying to say. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, he grades them. Um, and with, <laughs> it's kind of a little ritual for us. He grades them and and then, you know, puts little hearts in them and stuff if they're good. And like, and then I fight sometimes. I'm like, what do you mean a B minus? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so no poem leaves the house until it's approved by him, though. That's 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 but I, I'm, I'm, I'm different in the sense that I'm writing books of poetry. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I put then I I draft these I finish uh, you know maybe a, a round or two of revision then I put the poem away and then I write some more and then I and then I, every several months I take all the poems out and I look at what they're doing and how they're speaking to each other and thinking about what book this might be and then I put them away and to write some more and then I start writing more and more and I start ramping up how much I write um, and then eventually I. Uh, assemble a manuscript and then that's what I sent to at least three or four poets and also I l- always send it to a fiction writer friend of mine too because I like that perspective too so as I said poets sometimes can get too much into the nit grit and can maybe sometimes get too esoteric so I like also that that other that other uh, point of view from someone who's a writer but is not invested in poetry per se yeah exactly i i I hear i know exactly what you mean like if you send it to someone who is uh in in your trade you're like yeah like you said a moment ago you're like i'm not interested in 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 you know in line breaks or your opinion on that like no it's like right it's like what is it what is the feeling we're evoking here we can worry about mechanics later in the ma- but uh yeah you want to go for that like that that emotional feeling um above it all else and 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 so forth yeah like uh, my partner says like the best compliment is like it made me cry I'm like, okay now i know i got something yeah <laughs> the, the i always i tell my students something similar in terms of what i call big rocks and little rocks um and i actually learned this in a in a, in a management course um 
if you have a jar and you have a bunch of different size rocks and if you put all the rocks in together they won't fit but if you put all the big rocks in first and then let the little rocks trickle through then it'll all fit so <laughs> that's the thing we we use in in my poetry class big rocks and i say okay big rocks uh-huh. <laughs> and especially an undergraduate mostly it's big rocks right, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh i love that. that i know over the years i've had to um decode uh you know my wife's comments or edit or the when she, when she uh, reads anything i i give to her and i know that if she's not making a comment she likes it and before i'm like it's okay to compliment something you know something we need we right. need that in, as ballast in the boat of our insecurities. And, uh, but it's just, yeah. but she only tends to make notes when she's like, things are bugging her. And I've learned to, okay, if there are no notes here. She's, she's on, she's into it. She's in for the ride. But like, sometimes I'm like, you know, it would be nice to hear something nice. Melanie it would be, you know, <laughs> throw me a bone yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always begin the workshop of a poem with a, a couple, you know, I always say, okay, what are some things that are really working or, you know, what are some things you really like about the poem? Especially, you can imagine, um, in a, at a student level, they're hypersensitive to all that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so we begin on a good note, and then and then drifted to the harsher critiques. Yeah, and and for, certainly, you know, writing writing's ugly. Writing books is especially ugly, and uh, there's always it just looks like a construction scene. You know, there's chaos everywhere and weird noises. So when you're writing a book, how do you just navigate the grind of how disgusting the whole process is? And then eventually, you know, you're like, Oh, look at that. That's a good little apartment building. <laughs> right. Um, this is, this is where the left brain really kicks in. And I, I love, uh, right. I love writing books and I, I, I love putting together books and I love also, um, I love doing it for other people. I actually teach a class on the manuscript course, which is just about all those methods and, and, and tools that you use to put all your poems together. So but how I, uh, I've learned to, um, uh, first I'll print everything out and I usually place it in more or less chronological order because I think as we write, uh, and, I'm, and I'm kind of a slow writer because my gestation period is like four to five years for a book. Um, I don't know how people write a book of poetry in a year. I just don't, I just, I just can't like, <laughs> it's not, it's not the time. I just can't like, it, it's drains me. Like every time I finish a poem, I need like two weeks of rest. But anyway, <laughs> I, I feel like since it's over a large time that there's already, what I'm looking for is first, what is the arc, right? What are, what are the inflection points of this book? And since, our minds naturally navigate through these changes, poem to poem to poem. There's an evolution, an emotional evolution. So I first lay it out chronologically. Of course, it's not perfect chronologically, but then I start messing with it. And then I start looking for, okay, are there sections? So uh, how does that work? You know, what are, what are how do these poems are speak? And it's, yeah, it's messy. But it, of course, it has to be a visual process because you can't, your mind can't hold all that information. So I usually put them on the, on a big dining table that I have and then uh, start swapping them out and then looking at how that's happening and looking, looking at how that's happening and trying it this way and then trying it that way and taking pictures of it because you're like, Oh my God, maybe that was the right order. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, 
it's and then after that i know some of the poems in that batch are not ready yet for example but i know they're ready enough in in the terms of that they're saying something that i think is important to the book so once i have a first draft of the order then i start doing a pass poem by poem of editing and editing and editing and editing uh well i'm not editing revising but but lighter revisions um unless there's a poem that's really, really, really not ready, but I want it to be ready. And what happens in that process too, which is interesting, you start seeing holes and you start remembering, oh, I always wanted to write a poem about X, Y, or Z. And it probably goes here. Like there's sometimes, you know, you've skipped a poem that you, you, you didn't realize you wanted to write. So you start writing for the book a little bit, not a lot, but like this last book that we're talking about, I maybe uh, wrote like, six or seven brand new poems uh within the process of already like having it at the like at at beacon press i was still i still Mm. was handing them things and and reordering a little bit so yeah uh it has to be physical but um there's there's just different theories that we don't need to get not theories but um sort of strategies you would say about about that and um i look for those like um and thinking about Again, like I said earlier, you know, a book has to have a movement just like a poem does. Right? Yeah, and I imagine that, you know, sometimes you, you might have what you consider a, a, you know, a dynamite poem. Like, you really like it, and you know, but it's like, it just doesn't fit with this collection. And, you know, maybe it's best for this nice little poem. Maybe we can publish it somewhere, or maybe it's just got to go sit in the drawer for a while. And then you'd be like, all right, when it's ready, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back. Yeah. Yeah. There are some poems that are like, you're like, okay, they're kind of a mystery. And like, until you really, really feel, you understand the book, then maybe sometimes you can, oh, okay, now I see it, it can fit here or not. Uh, in my case in particular, uh, there's been a lot more of, of waste in that sense, because <laughs> um, I've written a lot of uh, commissioned and uh, occasional poems. Some of them, I agree, many actually have somehow fit into my work but but some haven't and i like them and i think they're great and they do something wonderful but it's not part of a, a book it's too specific to something that sort of takes you out of of the arc of the book but it's surprising there there's um well in this new book there's a poem uh, that was written for the inauguration, second inaugural of the president, uh, listen to me, uh, the president, uh, no, uh, Governor Janet Mills. And, you know, it's so much about nature and stuff in Maine, right? Um, and I thought, I sent it to my my agent, and he's like, no, this fits great, like, it's a good poem. Like, so I was like, oh, really? Oh, <laughs> like, fit, fit. You know, so uh, what I do is I'll just, I'll leave the, for the most part, those poems I, I don't, I don't let the reader know that where they are. I put them in the back in notes. So if they, if they want to read where these poems came from, one of them, uh, one of them was actually, well, it was in the previous collection. It was actually a poem that I wrote for a, um, a, uh, a radio uh, and web ad spot as a a video they did for advertising for, uh, if one could call it fine art advertising. It's not like, (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, it's artistic advertising. It, it sort of commissioned me to write a poem about Havana Club. Um, and eventually I did edit that one. Is there something important in there? So that's another possibility. And then you edit out of 
the specifics of what the occasion was or what the commission was and find the poem within the poem. Uh, so that has also happened, but yeah. Yeah. There's one in this collection of, uh, I think for like Bacardi rum or something, right. That you, yeah. 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 Bacardi. Uh, yeah. Havana. Oh, Club, that's what that, okay. Yeah. Which is owned by, yeah, it's owned by Bacardi and, um, and that, uh, that, that was an interesting, they, they've also commissioned a play about the, the family, the story of the, I mean, I say it's about the rum, but it's really about, um, it's largely about the story of, of the family that owned Havana club mm. and their story of exile. And so the poem is centric to the idea of exilic, exilic existence. Mm. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, a lot of us as writers, we all harbor our own insecurities that we have to, you know, work our way through, be it in early, middle, late stages of drafts or even just afterward. It's just a, it's a it's an industry fraught with neuroses and insecurities. And, uh, you know, for, for you, you know, what are some insecurities that you wrestle with uh, in those kind of demons so you can get to get to the good stuff and get work done? Yeah, it's a it's my demons and my angels at the same time. Mm -hmm. But um, um, you know, as a working class uh, immigrant, gay kid, I guess, but more so working class and immigrant. I don't know. I think that defined my aesthetic in some ways. And as a kid that didn't have access to the arts and wasn't you know wasn't in a family of art you know art appreciators or anything like that. I mean. You know, maybe, and, and didn't even know anything about American art for or arts or humanities. Like my parents didn't even know who Robert Frost was, or or the Rolling Stones, for that matter. So, <laughs> um, um, I I think it shaped my aesthetic that I always want. I always wanted to write poems that were accessible, and um, well, really, I can't write any other way because I'm not that kind of artist, that kind of esoteric artist. I've always. Uh, and I, and, I, and I do believe fundamentally that I don't think accessibility and complexity are antonyms. I, to me, my job, I suppose, is in some ways to do the work to distill things so that there's a power in it, but, and, it and the poem meets you wherever you're at, um, whether, whether you're you know, in seventh grade or whether you're a, a university professor or critic. But anyway, um, my demons are, are I'm like, oh, I want to be like really academic and esoteric like all these other poets <laughs> that I know. And I, there's a lot of different poets, but sometimes I feel less than because, uh, because I think sometimes I think my work may not be taken as seriously by um, reviewers and sort of the academic world um, because they're deceivingly accessible and because they are about subject matters that are, I think, you know, not rarefied. Um, so I don't know if that's all in my head, but that's constantly uh, in me. But then again, this is a space that I chose. Um, I, I remember writing more than 15 years ago some goals, which I do every once in a while, like every few years, and one of my goals, I was thinking of my, myself as being a poet of the people, like that's my self view. And so when you think about the, I don't know if it's energetic or if I've, whatever it is, but, you know, being presidential inaugural poet is one of the most, the most public moment for poetry in the entire United States. People, people think I'm the U.S. Poet Laureate still. I'm like, that's a whole other thing, people. <laughs> and so I love that poetry, that that platform has allowed me to um, take poetry to the most unlikely places and in a way i feel like that's been part of my uh, self-imposed mission or a mission i was sort of created or been drawn to um you know 
I have very poetry at the FDIC, at Silicon Valley, at Google, at um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the weirder the place, the more I'm there. Uh, all sorts of like um, nonprofit organizations and advocacy groups. Um, Gosh, like I, you know, the USDA. So, like, for many of these people, it's the first time they've ever even met or heard a living poet or even been to a poetry reading. <laughs> so, I get to be that person and sort of dispel their fears or myths or, or misunderstandings about poetry. And, but yeah, I always feel like uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not taken as seriously by the establishment, so to speak. Um, and um, like this new book, I'm like. I told my agent, what does it take to get a new, I mean, I want a, a damn like National Humanities Medal. <laughs> what does it take for my book to get reviewed like in the New York Times or God, at least the Boston Globe or the Chicago Tribune yeah. or something. <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe it's the opposite effect. Maybe it's like I've gotten too much attention. So people are like, well, he's already got a medal. What the hell do you need us for? <laughs> right? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, like a, but yeah, I constantly wrestle wrestle with that. That is a really bad thing for, for me. But, but as they say, you, know, you can't be anything but what you are. <laughs> so right, right. Yeah. At, at what point did you realize that you were on maybe on the a short list of poets to be the inaugural poet for you know um, you know President Obama's second inauguration? Um, no, there there's there's no short list or anything. There's no. There's not even an application. Mm -hmm. There's no, they just call you. (laughs) (laughs) They call you and you have to be up there and within a month reading a poem to 40 million people. So no no big deal. A million people in front of you and 40 million on T well, globally. Uh, So uh, it was, it's interesting because yeah. And, and it's, it's not something that every president does. So it's not like, you know, we're, you know, unlike the port laureate, which is, which is from the, Library of Congress, which is the le- legislative le- legislative branch, and that that appointment is every two years, every every year, and then there's an extension. So people are like, "Oh, who's going to be the next U.S. Port Laureate?" Yeah, it's completely uh, out of the blue, <laughs> like, <laughs> completely unexpected. Same thing with the with the humanities medal. I mean, you know, they call you, you don't call them. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, that's incredible. And and so when you're when you're up there, you know, reading, you know, in front of a, a ton of people live, and of course you just know in the back of your head there's millions of people watching. How do you clear the mechanism so you try to as best you can turn it into just another poetry reading? <laughs> oh yeah. Just another just, right? just another um, poetry reading. <laughs> it's it's interesting is um you know, the the other thing is kind of serving in that role is was a bit isolating because there well now there's only three people alive that have ever experienced that. And I mean, who do you who do you call? Hey, hey, last time you wrote a you wrote <laughs> read a poem for the president at the inauguration. What was that like? So what what did you do? Like, um, I did speak a little bit to Elizabeth Alexander, but you're also in the throes of just having to write these they asked me to write three poems and they chose the one I read after that, the media frenzy. So like, you know, you're like, there's not really a lot of time, but anyway, um, so it can be a, a little, a little isolating, but what happened to me was there was so much again, rush and just that when I was sitting there, like waiting to be called up to the podium it was really the first time I had actually been able to take it all in and breathe and say, wow, this is it. You know, means until that point, 
it was just this and that and the logistics. I mean, you didn't have to buy like t- like tons of clothes. Like I was living in Maine. I hadn't worn a suit in like 15 years, you know? <laughs> so what are you wearing? It's so much like to do and like, and so finally it hits me and I'm sitting with my mother there who is, um, um, who is, who I chose because she, you know, it's, as an immigrant and, and all her sacrifices and her insistence on education and leaving her entire family behind in Cuba, you know, I realized my story wasn't, would not have been possible without her. So that was a little bit grounding, realizing my mother who grew up in a dirt floor home is here, steps from the president and um, here we are, you know, we belong here, you know. The other thing was that in the, inaug- the inauguration, I had never been to an inauguration either. There is the sense of reverence. It's almost something sacred uh, that you realize you're in, kind of in service to something larger than yourself. It's bigger than the president. It's bigger than it's bigger than Beyonce <laughs> who read, uh, sung the national anthem. And you can feel it. I, I mean, there it really does signify. I mean, it really does symbolize the essence of a democracy, and more so than dumb fourth of july parades i'm sorry Mm -hmm. but like this is like and just those people as witness like that made me that abated my ego because it's the ego that thinks it's all about you right and you have to be perfect and you have to you know out outshine everything i'm like no this is by the time i they called me up i wanted to do this i wanted to read this poem already um and in service so so i think that was part of it uh the mindset there's also Maybe it's not even that complicated, but it was just something that was too big to fail. <laughs> <laughs> like your ego's like, don't even, you know, don't, don't even try me. Like, like so I, all I was praying is I wouldn't trip, um, <laughs> that I wouldn't get like sort of dizzy and vomit or that, <laughs> or I just, or just freak out and blah, 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 blah. And like roses are red, violets are blue. <laughs> Obama loves you. Me too. You know, good night. <laughs> there was also one beautiful gesture, which, which to me was a surprise, but I don't know why it was a surprise, but maybe, but um, when I go up to the podium, both the president and vice president stand up and shake my hand. And like that little gesture, which, you know, felt like they were presenting me to my country, not like, um, not like, oh, read a poem for the king, you know, mm-hmm. like, and they literally and figuratively felt like they had my back because I had one, each of them were sitting right be- right behind me, one on each side. So, so that was, uh, that gave me a little, a little sort of a little nudge. Um, and that was, and that was nice. And then um, the only other thing was that uh, Gloria Stefan um, sent word um through my my PR agent all the time sent sent a message a beautiful message and she said you know don't run away from this like this is going to be a once in a lifetime thing embrace it and that helped me too because if if you look at the video I kind of look out over the crowd for about a couple seconds I know don't run away from it and I was like yeah this is it you know (laughs) so all those little things helped I think oh that's amazing and uh, and in reading uh, your your latest collection too, there's always there are several moments where you talk about the death of your father, and then like tor- towards the end, I th- I think you get into some other moments about potentially you know just 
you know, your own, your own body, your own death. And I wonder as someone who's now a middle age poet, what your, your relationship to mortality might be and just in the way you, uh, metabolize it, uh, in, in, in what I've read here and maybe how you're thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's really a, a big part of the book. Um, or where the genesis of all these poems came from. A lot of this was written during the pandemic. Um, and I never thought the pandemic affected me. I got so tired of that question. I'm like, how has the pandemic mm-hmm. affected your writing? I'm like, I don't know. I'm sitting here at my, my desk by myself writing <laughs> in, in a small town in Maine. I don't see people for weeks at a time anyway. <laughs> right. I have to make up something. Oh, it's really affecting me. You know, like, like it was like Tuesday. Who cares? Like, yeah. Just, <laughs> but anyway, it was affecting me in some ways. Because as as I always say, my poems are smarter than me. Like they 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 still keep on teaching me after I write them what I'm really feeling. Um, and so the poems really started um, becoming about. It's not so much death, but just about. I call it a series of surrenders. Like mm. there's the surrendering of of the ego that is the one that wants to you know find home and live happily ever after there's there's the surrender of that 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 insatiable uh you know uh thirst for a place and and a sense of belonging that i've been through so many iterations of that and knowing that that's in a way home is a state of mind for now so so there was that kind of death i call it you know series of little mortalities right there's also um there's the the letting go and the lat and the poems in the in the new poems in the latter half right of letting go of all of all the tr- uh, inherited trauma of exile of of uh, my parents and my, you know my grandmother and her verbal abuse as a homophobic um caretaker primary mm. caretaker so there's also that letting go um and then um and then yeah just uh in a way these poems have helped me accept my mortality in a ways because I, as you mentioned middle age where i'm i'm starting to really think about that and also not so much my own dying but you know we just went to a wedding the other day and like all the all my older relatives they're gone hmm. you know you start realizing what happens when my friends start going when we get to that age or like so i it's not a downer i think it's it, there's a beauty in just accepting that and 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 knowing that and so and i think there's also in the first part of the new poems right there's also a surrender to my art to saying this is a kind of home that i've never really explored that sense of being a community and in conversation with other poets, with other writers, with other artists. Um, and that was a, a kind of other dimension to that. But yeah, my father's life, just to answer, yeah, my father died when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And at 22, you don't really have an, you know, an adult relationship with your parents. Um, and so my poetry in a way as a way of, he was obviously, I mean, not obviously, but he was an emotionally handicapped man, which is, part partially of that generation and just you know not very communicative and um and so i use my poetry to take whatever little sliver of something that i remember of him and sort of recreate him or to talk to him um but it's really interesting because i i am 55 when this book comes out and my dad died at 55 Mm. And I've always wondered about that age, you know, survivor's guilt or something, you know, there's something supposedly happens to you when you like live longer. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, and it doesn't help that I drink too much coffee and still smoke cigarettes. So, <laughs> so that's all. But the pandemic, oh, and the pandemic too, right? Like you really were facing like, shit, I could die. Like, mm-hmm. you know, through no fault of my own. You know, like I had never been that close to a real fear of death. And and again, even my and even those around me, right? Like, um, I was I was in Miami teaching, and I just I and I was li- temporarily living living with my mother. And I was just freaked out that I would, you know, infect her because I still had to be out you know, on, on the road. Um, and I just got in a car and drove back to Maine, like, and saying goodbye to my mother, not knowing if that's the last time I would ever see her. You know, that's crazy. Well, I think we've all had those moments of the pandemic, those thoughts. So I think all that made it into that book. Um, and, and I think also what happens at 55 is not just mortality, right? But it's also like you, you get to a, a point in your life where you just let me put it colloquially like you're full of, you're you're full of all the crap of life <laughs> you're just like you know you know you're just like, i don't care you know at 55 like i don't care <laughs> like enough enough like you know that kind of letting go of, of things um you feel you've earned you've earned uh your place in this world and um and don't have to in a sense you know harp or or you know just you, you have a different sense of accountability to yourself and to the world. And I think that's part of what the, these poems uh, are doing. <laughs> I, I love how you said, uh, you know, earlier in our conversation, then I saw a recent, uh, a recent story of you saying it, that you've like, as a, you know, as a poet, you've been writing basically, you know, one poem, you know, in some ways for, uh, you know, your entire life. Right. And uh, just at what point did you kind of arrive at that when you saw, like, maybe you look behind you in the body of work, you're like, oh, okay, I, I can see the dots that are connecting all these together in some way. Yeah, you know, I've been trying to research where I got that from, and I'm scared that maybe I just stole it from a, another boy or something. <laughs> but um, um, I, I want to say maybe it was... Lorca, I don't know. I, I, I don't even think it was, if it, I don't know, I have some vague recollection of maybe I read that somewhere, but really that's not important. What's important? When did that happen? You know, I think it's, um, for me, it happened in my second book. Um, the first book I wrote at my at lunch hour, it was the easiest thing I ever did in my life. Um, the easiest book I ever wrote, <laughs> but also because I was in the, in the graduate program. So I got an assignment every week, every week I had a poem. And like I said, that first assignment put me right on the path of here's what I care about. Here's the question. This is the theme of my work. And so every assignment I would, I would turn into something for me that made sense to me. And almost every, every assignment is a poem in that first book. The second book talk about the ego was like, Oh, I don't want to write about palm trees anymore. Being Cuban. I'm like, so over that, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like I want to be like, a, <laughs> I want to, this next book is going to be brilliant. And I'm going to like win a Pulitzer prize. I'm the youngest person ever won a Pulitzer prize. <laughs> and I was going to write all this stuff about my journey from engineering to poetry. And like the bridge, the book was called one of the many dozens of bad titles was bridge of tongues. <laughs> like like once, <laughs> and I was writing all these horrible poems that belonged in this brilliant book. Meanwhile, I was writing these other poems that ah, that doesn't belong in the book. I'm gonna just put that away. Ah, that's that's not that's that sucks. That's not part of this genius book that I'm writing. <laughs> um, so I had a draft of the manuscript, and I I sent it to my mentor, um, uh, my professor. And he's like, nope. 
<laughs> not there. Sorry, buddy. Um, and I thought, oh shit, what do you mean? You're kidding me. This is brilliant. <laughs> and uh, and then I looked at all those poems that I wasn't writing that didn't belong in the book, and guess what? They were all about. So <laughs> I had I had been I had poems there from other trips to Cuba, still thinking about my identity. I had poems about living in. Um, I had moved temporarily uh, to Connecticut to Hartford, Connecticut for a job. I had never lived anywhere else in the world except Miami. So that culture shock um, and that uh, sense of, of by myself, you know, complete sort of displacement and loneliness um, and not feeling attached to a place. And then also I started traveling a lot, but also I, all the poems are sort of questioning place. And in a way, in a way, I was sort of searching for home in all the wrong places, <laughs> like so to speak, as the song goes. <laughs> and so I, that's when I learned never run away from yourself. You know, no, don't insist on you, grow, mm -hmm. but don't run away from the question. And that's when I realized, oh, yeah, this is this is it. It fell in my lap. Why am I rejecting this? It takes sometimes authors, you know, several books to really get what it is that is going to be their life's work. And like, and that's what I'm doing here. And and in, and in, and in this book is just yet another another iteration of that. Right? Like, I I'm in I'm in this I'm in this sense now that. I've never gained, I've never gained a home or lost a home. I've never found a home or abandoned a home, but that home is really the psyche of home that it's really all those places. It's all the sum of my experiences that I carry in me. Hence the title homeland of my body. I'm tired of that wild goose chase, right? It's all good. And ironically, I end up also sh sh sharing my time between Miami and Maine. And so I'm sort of, also in sort of these two spaces and and they're all home and they're not home and they've been home and they will be home and they change and like so so yeah i think that's i think it was that 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 second book is i think for most poets i'll tell you the second book is the worst most horrible hardest book to write because um, and to publish <laughs> because you know your first book is like oh you're a brand new author and there's a lot of contests publication contests for first books but not a lot for second books and so there are contests that are open so you're also putting your book in with like you know the likes of I mean she rest in peace with you know Louise Glick yeah. you know <laughs> so it's like what <laughs> like you know potential you know people that would go end up winning Pulitzer Prizes and, and what, well you're seniors right people that had five or six books were still part of this way that poetry got published so yeah, that's all. That's all well, well put too. How you know, you, through much of your your process and development as a as a writer, it's like you, you you almost slingshot your way like away from yourself, away from who you are, only to realize that you had to come back to yourself in some in some kind of homecoming, and you realize like, yeah. oh, it was it was there the whole time. I just I, I needed to just either surrender to it or just look, you know, accept accept yeah. where I was in the first place. Yeah, and the challenge is also not to get static either, right? Mm -hmm. Or not to get to not to let yourself explore those those that question in different dimensions of it, rather than writing the same poem, um, you know, forty times. Um, which is another thing about a manuscript. You, you know, you want to have some kind of variety in terms of form, in terms of tone, so that it doesn't always feel like. Um, so yeah, it's always that fine balance between getting getting too stuck too stagnant but also rejecting yourself um 
Nice. And uh, I, I was hoping that maybe you might indulge me in a, and read, a, you know, a poem or two of your of your choice that I would splice in somehow into this episode. I was wondering if, if you're open to that, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to get that sure. on tape for uh, for listeners. Sure. I would love Excellent. that. So, um, you know, one, one of the other um, interesting coincidences or serendipities is that I end up again split sharing my time between Miami but I end up I end up living by choice um in the same little town well it's not a little town I mean it is a little town but it's in the middle of the metropolis of greater Miami but this was the in this the same town where I first bought an apartment and moved out of my mother's house and uh, where I wrote my first book. Oh, so, no. <laughs> um, it's like, what? This is crazy. And it's the town is called Surfside. And so this this poem contemplates uh, the return. Uh, who am I now? What was I then? Have I moved? You know, all those layers of like, when you come back to a place, you're like, did anything happen? <laughs> like, or, am I still the same person or not? What parts have changed or not? So it's called Once Upon a Time. Sorry, I always say that. It's Upon a Time, <laughs> Surfside, Miami. Once and once again, I am, as I remember myself. 30 years later, I can still savor the sway of these palms fanning this same wind into syllables whispering good morning in my eyes, saving these todays when I can no longer hear how to live out this passion for breaking myself into poems like this. Like these waves that once upon a time are again my loyal loves still kissing my feet as I stroll this shore and glance back at my footprints again washed away. The salty salve of these breezes I breathe, living once again with all my joyous regrets for all I've done right or wrong, for all I am now that is enough yet not enough, for who I wanted to be once still searching this sea, still facing the same mute horizon, I ask again, who am I? What should I do? The answer, as always, everything. Excellent. <laughs> it's funny you picked that one. Right. I read, uh, I had highlighted in that poem too, how I love the line of breaking myself into poems like this. It, like to me that just... Uh, I don't know. That's the the essence of sometimes being a writer too. Is just like taking, taking, metabolizing your experience, and then it's just like in this instance, it's just like you oh, yeah. shatter into this poem, or you know, in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. There's a. You probably noticed. There's a lot of poems here that are. I wouldn't call them ours poeticas, but they are. They they are self-referential, and I think that's part of what I was saying earlier about. Art, my 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 very art being a place I exist right as it happens in me like that is an experience that is that is a, a way of being so um, more than more than other poems many other poems that I've written so um, I I'd like to read either cool. you you pick maybe uh, why I needed to um, which is the one that repeats because playing God which is about playing with Legos mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, any any of those uh, tickle your fancy <laughs> or self to self, which is that it's sort of talking to myself, um, in those little couplets. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Why, or the title poem. Yeah. Well, when maybe the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, maybe the title poem that that's, that sounds, uh, you know, germane. Um, yeah. Any, any, yeah, we okay, can go with great. that one. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for listeners. I think this is a, a friendlier poem also for, 
for the ear. For the homeland of my body, for my ears, still these ears, lullaby by Madrid's rains, the day I was born into the tempest of my parents' exile, holding their lost Cuba in their arms along with me. For my hands, still these hands, sculpting sand cancels, guarded by the seagulls and palm trees that raised me to reach for the sun, to be as confident as Miami's skyscrapers, rising as I did. For my feet, still these feet, wandering forever through my father's sugarcane fields, tousled by the wind of his dead voice, blowing with stories of the sweet sour life his machete earned for him, for me. For my lungs, still these lungs, breathing the scent of mangoes, my mother peddled by dirt roads to pay for her school books. The dust in her eyes, graced by the sea-green Caribbean, still hemming the island of her life. For my eyes, still these eyes, peering back into the sparkling shore I left for the stark brick of New England, walls enclosing years of my loneliness, quiet as the snow-covered fields outside my window. For my hips, still these hips, swaying to carnival drums with the Brazilian lover whose samba pulsed through me. Let me lust for the hills and valleys of his body, only to let it all go. For my veins, still these veins, coursing through me like the canals of a sinking city. The cobblestone maze of its streets lead me to lose myself in the echoes of my own footsteps. For my legs, still these legs, standing at the mouth of a volcano, kissing a man I'd fall in love with, fiery and gorgeous as the lava at our feet, as the sunsets above the home we'd build nested in the thick bones of northern pines. For my flesh, still this flesh, alive with all the places I've ever loved or lost or have yet to find and to lose. This constant homeland of my body, wherein all my homelands reside at once, as they will do until my body's memory disappears into the dust of my own dust. Nate, awesome. That was a good choice. It was kind of wrapped up everything we talked about. I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I love that. And uh, well, well, Richard, I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, I love closing these conversations sure. down by just asking the, the guest, and you in this case, for um, a recommendation of some kind uh, for the listeners. And that can just be anything you're excited about. And uh, so I just extend that to you, what you might recommend for the listeners out there. Um, in terms of a, a poet, it could or, be um, a poet. It could be a, a a brand of coffee or a fanny pack you've been tickled oh. by. I mean, it's anything you're excited about. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, let me think. What am I excited about? <laughs> I'm, I'm not that excitable these days. I guess. Um, right. Well, I I guess I'm just gonna go with like whatever this is like a bad this is like a bad jeopardy answer but like <laughs> what is a cruise ship um i i um i i haven't taken a vacation in about 12 years mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and because i travel so much for my poetry um i being at home is a luxury for me so i realized that's still not relaxing so i'm finally 
taking a 10-day cruise when the semester ends. And so I guess my recommendation is a cruise, but in general, take time to relax. <laughs> I mean, really relax. I'm just completely going to disconnect. And I love cruises because I've been cruising since I was a little kid. And I'm so excited because I haven't been on a cruise in so long. Um, and I just, I, I get giddy. Um, I'm waiting, counting down the days till I can like check in already for the, for the cruise. And like, I've looked at the website like 80 times and like done virtual tours of the boat. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, take time for yourself, I guess is my recommendation. Oh, fantastic. Well, this, this was so great, Richard. And I just want to uh, just, uh, yeah, thank you so much for the time coming on talking craft and for the amazing work you've done. And this is uh, this is really a, a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks. Thanks for supporting the work. And, and I must say, you got a great voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you're in the right business there. <laughs> thank you, Brendan. Well, that was great. You know, thanks to Richard. I recorded this one back in November. Yeah, I know. So thanks for the patience, uh, above all. Uh, I have like six of these in the can that are all recorded in 2023 at some point or another and uh, with more coming. And it's, uh, it's a matter of being able to squirrel away an entire day to edit and do all the things like this riveting parting shot you're about to hear. So I turned in a 555 page, 170,000 word draft to my first editor, an editor I'm paying to help me see what I can't see and trim what I must trim. I haven't shared a word of this book with anybody. You know, frankly, I don't think it's fair to share a work in progress with a spouse. Uh, don't put them in the position to break your heart any more than they might already do on a daily, yearly, or... Oh, boy. Uh, best to keep that firewall up. Anyway, since January 1... I had been going like seven days a week and largely just writing through the timeline. It was like early on, it was maybe like 2,000 words a day. And then I had to go up to three. And then like it got up to like 4,000. Uh, through the first part of writing uh, the book, which we'll call Panic Phase One, I was like, let's, let's just say the worry was that there wasn't going to be enough freshness and new stuff to even hit my contractually obligated 85 to 95,000 words. So it was like, oh my God, can I, can I even get there? And uh, when I hit 85,000 and I, and I knew I was roughly halfway through my timeline, we entered what I like to call panic phase two, the OMG how will I ever get through the entire story in a reasonable amount of words and pages? Doing the math, it is not a reasonable amount of words or pages. It is an unreasonable amount because that's what we writers are good at, math. Doing that math, I'm about double my word count and I barely scratched the surface of the hundreds of hours of recordings that I meticulously went through. Well, I didn't even go through half of them, to be honest. But that's neither here nor there. I still have calls to make, newspapers to browse, transcripts to clean up, and transcripts to reread and reread so I don't forget a crucial detail that brings ever great, greater humanity and fullness to my guy. It's also time to consider that the promotional push 
is uh, is coming and what that's going to be like and how best to handle that, how best to embrace it. So many of us bristle at the idea that we have to be our primary champion of our own work. Makes us feel like hucksters on the internet. I see firsthand the desperation and the plight of the author on an almost daily basis. One, I get bombarded by publicists and authors for this podcast. I try to honor as many as I can, but it's impossible to keep up. There's only so much I can read and only so many spots available on the calendar. If I'm lucky in a good year, I publish 52 a year. 12 of those go to the Atavist. So that leaves 40 authors. A handful of those are always going to be repeats. So yeah, there's a finite amount of spots, at least for this show. And then you see on threads or Instagram, the only two socials I dance with, and uh, authors are just, uh, to me, they, it just feels like they're going about it wrong. And I say that because nothing anybody does on social media makes me care. You can share your pre-order link all you want, but that doesn't excite me in the least, unless I'm like a super fan. I, I'm also an odd bird, uh, but what I but what I see more than anything on social media is writers talking to writers and writers writers trying to sell their books to other writers who are desperately also trying to sell their books to writers. Yeah, easier said than done, but the writer of a certain book has to take their book to where the readers are. Now, all writers are readers, at least they should be, but not all readers are writers, so you have to meet them where they are. Again, I'm not saying that's easy, I don't really hang out on Facebook, but I imagine there are Facebook groups. Uh, where where else are there? I see. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not the authority here. I just know what doesn't work for me and what I see out there that make that annoys me. So, and my big thing, uh, as many of you know, is to do as much as possible outside the influence of the algorithm. You link on, uh, you know, your your link on, let's say. Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or threads or wherever you're hanging out, the it, it just gets gobbled up and buried. You know, you, it doesn't. It just doesn't work. You know, my my thing is is you just publish like crazy as widely as possible, always with a link back to your newsletter or blog. You know, what can be repurposed from your manuscript? Or what expertise can you share from the experience of writing your book? Unless and until you're book famous, just about no one is going to listen to you. You know, Bowen, George Saunders, or now like Susan Erlene, who just started a Substack, suddenly people are like flocking. They just run in for all the answers. I guess you have to remind yourself that everyone at one time or another was blissfully anonymous. Their writerly fame was earned, and then that reputation can be leveraged for greater audience share in the that that sliver of waning attention. You know, I, I don't do guest posts on my website, but like Jane Friedman does, uh, Bullet Journal does. I imagine there are many others as well, like prominent blogs and websites that uh, will take on a well-crafted post, and then you can kind of leverage that audience to help you out too. You know, maybe a teeny tiny fraction of those people might really dig you and enroll in more of what you're doing. It's the old adage of a little and often over the long haul gets you where you want to go. It's kind of like in fitness. If, you, you know, if you're lifting three to five days or exercising three to five days a week over 52 weeks, sleeping well and not eating or drinking junk, 
in a year, I can guarantee you, you'll probably feel better. Same with finances, same with writing a book or starting a blog or a podcast. Little by little, over time, gives you the best chance at compounding that interest, man. People are chasing virality, but that's a slot machine mentality that will not will not yield you anything. And even if something does go viral, how sticky is that? Might feel good in a day if you get a bunch of people liking your stuff, but are any of those being converted into longtime fans? I don't think so. Marketing your own book is just about, or just as much about celebrating others as it is yourself. And I think a lot of people make that mistake too. They're just, they're constantly like, here's my thing out. Here's my thing. Here's my thing. And they always forget to be like, here's this person's thing and this person's thing and this person's thing. I think on a ratio of nine to one of someone else to you is, is a good ratio. Just my own math. Anyway, I'm going to have a lot to say about these next phases of the book process and the marketing. The latter part, I think, is what writers struggle with the most and the ones that, the, the one topic where people, like, their ears are like, oh, okay, like, how can this help? And I'll aim to do what I can to contribute to that swamp of this ecosystem. So remember, CNFers. Stay wild. And if you can do, interview. See ya.